generally speaking, it's just been really wonderful feeling. And it's kind of given me a, a sort of mission in life because of the ju social justice issue. Uh, so I work with companies to help them raise money and I also help them build brands. And what I like to do is to suggest that if they have a, if they want to really drive engagement with consumers, they should have a purpose in their brand. And that purpose could be, you know, social justice. Welcome to the Digital Irish Podcast, part of the Digital Irish Network. The Digital Irish Network is all about shining a light on innovation in the tech and digital ecosystem with an Irish flair. I'm your host, Dave Byrne. Welcome to episode three of the second season of the Digital Irish Podcast. I was particularly interested to speak to today's guest. I am talking about corporate cannabis with him. This is an industry that I knew nothing about, and I do feel so much more knowledgeable after speaking to our guest. And our guest is Mark Collins. To give you an idea of his career before corporate cannabis, he has worked with some of the most famous brands in the world, Kraft Foods, Time Warner. He was global marketing director of CNN for five years. So he's done quite a lot. But in 2015, he pivoted and he started helping build brands such as Bloom Farms and Auto. He raised capital for clients as diverse as MedMen and Harborside. We had a fantastic discussion of the history of cannabis and the connections to Ireland previously. Most recently, Mark has helped complete a raise of $9.4 million for hemp product maker Hemptown USA, and he's overall helped raise over $260 million in capital for companies in this industry. So I couldn't think of somebody better to learn about this industry, get a breadth of knowledge. And you'll hear he mentions a lot of Irish names. So if it's interesting to you, uh, do let us know because we're planning on reaching out to some of these to potentially go into more detail on this industry. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Can't thank you enough for taking out the time. It's a pleasure to join you. Mark, I want to start with a little bit of almost background to where we're at right now, because it really does feel like that perceptions of cannabis is, is shifting and corporate cannabis seems to be taking off right now. What is it about this moment in time that seems to be really changing things up? Yeah, I think the thing that's really changing now is a realization that the war on drugs, and in particular the vilification of cannabis, was entirely wrong. It's increasingly being seen that there's a growing body of academic research that shows that cannabis has the potential to either solve or mitigate many different uh, illnesses. It helps to mitigate epileptic seizures. It's been known to reduce uh, inflammation significantly. It's also been known that recently, a lot of science has shown the how the mechanisms of the cannabinoids interact with our own endocannabinoid system. And so particularly in Europe, which is being driven more by science as a cannabis market, you're seeing, you know, huge amount of thinking about different applications to solve treatment resistant diseases like PTSD are being solved with cannabis. 
Uh, you have therapies where people who are suffering from chronic alcohol addiction have used uh, CBD-rich cannabis uh, cultivars and strains in order to reduce their dependency and sometimes go entirely off alcohol even though they were uh, very addicted. So this anecdotal evidence combined with the growing uh, body of academic research, and in particular, the intercept between all of that and the booming recreational market means that, you know, in countries like Canada, which it's fully legal and states like California. So you have the, the wheels of capitalism are starting to kick in and people are making billions of dollars. But the paradox is they're making billions of dollars while there's 40,000 people in jail here in the United States who are in jail for cannabis law violations. So it's, there's a lot of uh, absurdities in the market. I actually want to touch on one point there because what many of the listeners may not be aware of is that like, you know, it wasn't always like this, that cannabis was this kind of like illegal, illicit substance or see as vilified as it has been before. And you touched on it there. It's like, we're coming towards the end of the war on drugs. You have some great knowledge of the war on drugs and like where that really came from originally. Just this last uh, Friday, April the 30th, the Swiss National Council, they voted in favor of adult use uh, legalization. So, you know, it's amazing how far we've come. And of course, that particular country, Switzerland, still has a long way to go. They're doing all sorts of research and to check whether you burst into flames if you smoke cannabis. And I don't know what they're testing, but they're wasting a lot of time and money. But nonetheless, it still has to go to their upper parliamentary chamber. But regardless, they have been catapulted now to the front of the, the forefront of the emerging European cannabis industry. So that progress bookends what what the heck happened you know the indian culture for example they have a long uh, history with this cannabis which they called bang or the famous cultivars and plants of africa were used by hannibal's troops as they marched over the alps as a medicine you know very common in roman times too so fast forward to the 1920s and 1930s in America, people smoked what they called ganja, and it was very common. But around that time, America was becoming more and more wealthy, so they created what they called the uh, Federal Department of Narcotics, primarily to try to reduce the horror of the opium addiction that was you know, still very prevalent from you know, the opium wars of the past century. So you have America booming, and then all of a sudden you have this guy, his name is Harry Anslinger, appointed to this obscure Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he didn't have much to do. Um, He he eliminated a few supply chains of heroin and and wrapped it up, but obviously he wanted to keep his job. So just about that time, America was sort of, you know, booming, but Mexico was suffering from a very brutal civil war. And so these tens of thousands of uh, Spanish-speaking Mexican immigrants flooded into the States to escape the, the horrors of the Civil War. And it became something of a the, the white European patriarchy weren't too impressed with the, the uh, challenges to the status quo. So Harry Anslinger stepped in and he adopted this sort of quasi-Spanish-speaking term 
uh, marijuana and uh, helped pass the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And basically, instantly, he had a, there was a law that came out of nowhere that was able to control that particular population, very few of whom actually consume cannabis. There were just families who were fleeing them, maybe a handful did consume cannabis. But what happened then though, Dave, was all of the next decades, cannabis law became a handy tool for controlling certain segments of US citizens. For example, in the in the 60s, uh, cannabis laws were used to control the pot smoking hippies protesting against the Vietnam War or the cannabis laws that were used to control black civil rights protesters and you know harass them with these uh, cannabis laws. So cannabis laws then became a handy means of harassment. And what's really a, a bad about it is that the Nixon, Richard Nixon, his own government, you know, became sort of opposed to cannabis. And so against the wishes of his own administration, Richard Nixon made made cannabis a schedule one uh, narcotic as lethal and without any medical value as heroin. So the problem with the scheduling was that it immediately eliminated any research and it removed the missing chapter. It, it created a missing chapter in the medical textbooks uh, of cannabis around the world, uh, of, sorry, of Ivy League schools around the world. So there was no cannabis education in, in medical schools. And so the cannabis became, you know, people became afraid of it because of the propaganda. And then the war on drugs um, was basically used by Nixon and later by Reagan, who had his own war on drugs with equally disastrous results. To say the war on drugs was a disaster is a great understatement. From what you're saying, it's like it became like a political ploy, more so than actually scientific or research based. It's like, hey, this is good, good for my politics, but not good for what is actually good for people. You're 100 percent right, Dave. In fact, you know, there's a whole another chapter in that, you know, sorted history book of, you know, cannabis uh, prohibition, which is the fact that the uh, uh, in the tobacco interests and the alcohol interests conspired to uh, eliminate cannabis. And then they were joined by the pharma, pharmacological you know, companies, the pharmacy companies, big pharma. So big tobacco, big pharma, uh, big alcohol, you know, were part of a conspiracy to, 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 to eliminate that together with the paper barons who didn't want to have hemp, which is an excellent source of uh, paper. Hemp is a very, also very regenerative to the soil. It takes out four times as much carbon out of the atmosphere as a, a normal tree would. It's a, it's a weed and it's very inexpensive to grow too. You could make clothing out of it. In fact, the first Levi jeans were made from hemp. So it's so absurd that it's been banned because it's a, there's not only a, uh, this this whole you know social justice issue, but there's a huge economic own goal uh, for people missing this. Well, on that, I want to touch on what is what it was in particular that attracted you because you touched on two very big things there, which is obviously the economics of it, but also the societal benefits of it, where it's there's the medical aspects, there's paper aspects, there's so many different things that this could benefit society. What was it for you that made you go, oh, there's something here that I want to get involved in? 
It was a number of things. Um, I was based in, so I went to, I was born in the United States actually. And I, but I was educated in, um, in Dublin in a uh, secondary school. And I went to university college, Dublin. And, you know, it always struck me that, uh, and you know, there's hash in Ireland. That's the format obviously of, of cannabis. That's the way it's, it's, 70% of Europe is supplied by Morocco. So to get it from Morocco to smuggle it, they have to compress it. And that's the hash uh, process. Um, so, but I'd smoke it and it, it just made me giggle. And, uh, you know, my friends and I would go down to the backfield or whatever. And, and we'd, we'd rock out our little, what we call the nodge and put it, we'd mix it with tobacco because we didn't have enough of it. And um, we'd smoke it and we'd all have a laugh and that was it. And uh, so I didn't really think there was too much problem with it. So what, so I've always, so I had a benign attitude towards it. And then, you know, you read about it a little bit here and there and you realize that it's pretty harmless. And then uh, when I, essentially what happened was I, I started my career after university, I went to Procter & Gamble and I was working in the marketing department there. And then after that, I, I got into international roles and wound up eventually switching companies and working for a coffee company in the Netherlands called uh, Jakobstouwe Egberts. And um, there, you know, when you're in Amsterdam, you, you're, you're like friends who you haven't seen from Dublin, like in 20 years, they immediately, they hear you're in Amsterdam. They're like, oh, how's it going, Mark? We haven't he heard from you in a while. Can we come over and visit? You know, So I became like a, a tour guide for, stone, for, for people who were never stoned before, got stoned and, you know, would, they, they'd be in my apartment staring into my refrigerator for like six hours, totally forgetting what they were supposed to be doing. So we had a laugh, you know, it's, 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 you know, cannabis has a, like I said, it's an analgesic, it's essentially a painkiller. Um, but what it does is it gives you a, some of the cultivars and blends give you a mildly euphoric feeling sometimes, or some blends and terpenes and so on can give you a, 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 a make you sulfurific or sleepy. But what it really was for me was, um, I was, uh, there was a, the consolidation of the coffee industry meant that my CD went or resume went from like five companies into one. And so I had to make a career decision. Number one, number two, I was living in Amsterdam and I realized that, you know, no one was dying of cannabis. In fact, on the contrary, people were coming over to, you know, get it, get, get supplies for their epileptic children and things like that. It was really something. And, you know, my, my sister in Ireland, Mary, she suffers from cerebral palsy. I was very frustrated that she wasn't able to access any CBD, nor could I send it to any to her legally. And that, that made it, got it a bit personal for me. And, you know, all my career I've been, you know, I opened up all the Eastern European markets when I worked for Kraft and, and also the Middle East. And I, I worked for CNN for a few years. So I was able to travel around the world and I, and I saw the massive opportunity where all over the world in different cultures, people were smoking cannabis as a medically, even in places like Thailand, they created a poultice that they would use to treat wounds with cannabis. So, and then when you look into the history of cannabis, it's hilarious, the, the hypocrisy of, of America, because there was, during the Second World War, they had like hemp for victory videos, which you could still find online. In other words, they wanted people to grow cannabis because it, as, as we said, it produces not only uh, medicine, but it produces uh, uh, rope 
uh, you know, the, the whole British Navy at one point had hemp rope in clothing, you know, it produces, uh, you can make hempcrete and very inexpensive housing. It's amazing for the, uh, the environment. It takes out, it sequesters so much carbon, you wouldn't believe it. And so all those things conspire together to, to, to make it a no brainer for me to, uh, well, I left the coffee industry because the coffee industry consolidated my company, uh, JDE, uh, had a sort of what they call a social plan. They gave people an opportunity to be redundant. And I took off like a, uh, as fast as I could, but I, I went back to Ireland, uh, where my mother lives and I stayed with my mother for a year and I worked for Kerry foods. I got a job as their, uh, um, marketing director for Kerry group. And, um, you know, not to be confused with Kerry Gold Butter, but Kerry are an excellent company. They're based out in Nace and Kildare. And, you know, I was living in Shankill and that commute, you know, from, our, uh, you know, Ireland's traffic is getting pretty, pretty much like LA's traffic. So that, that further propelled me to say, you know, is this it? You know, here is me, a 40 something guy thinking, you know, is this it? And then I thought, well, you know, um, I've been an expat so long. I'm used to, you know, uh, uh, opening emerging markets and I, I just couldn't look away from cannabis. I mean, uh, the projected, uh, at, you know, when I joined the cannabis industry in 2017, it was projecting to be at, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, billions of dollars. You know, imagine if the entire world switched from beer uh, to cannabis and switched from cigarettes to cannabis and switched from cotton to cannabis and switched from pharma to, can you know, it just blew my mind. So I, I literally came over to Los Angeles uh, in 2017 with the shirt on my back, straight on off the plane from uh, Dublin. Uh, there's a direct flight to LA from Dublin. And I didn't know where I could find the cannabis industry. I was like, oh dear, you know, where is it? You know, it doesn't like, you know, it's not like the Temple Bar, like the entertainment district, it's, it's there, it's the Temple Bar. It's like, it's amorphous. But anyway, I found my way into a, uh, a dispensary and, Shortly after that, I worked with a few people to start up a cannabis company, and then we started up another one and another one. And it's been really exciting. I've, I'm, I think I'm, I'm uh, one for one. I've had one success and I had one disaster, but it's really exciting because, you know, I'm not the most, I'm not the most brilliant uh, uh, entrepreneur in the world. I was sort of spoiled working in the corporations. Like I, 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 I got burned a few times on really not having my contracts and legal things uh, eyes uh, dotted and T's crossed. But generally speaking, it's just been really wonderful feeling. And it's kind of given me a, a sort of mission in life because of the ju social justice issue. Uh, so I work with companies to help them raise money and I also help them build brands. And what I like to do is to suggest that if they have a, if they want to really drive engagement with consumers, they should have a purpose in their brand. And that purpose could be, you know, social justice. I, I really love that. I think, you know, one thing that we've kind of heard consistently, especially from entrepreneurs is actually being very purpose-driven makes it a lot easier for you to kind of get through the different challenges that you face as an entrepreneur and not to be, 
you know, if you get knocked down uh, and you're purpose driven, you're going to get yourself back up again and move forward. And it kind of seems like that you all, like you actually had that experience. You had one success, one failure kind of thing, you know? You know, I've never really articulated it before and I've never heard anyone articulate it. Um, you'd be a really good therapist, David, by the way, if you need a job. But uh, no, seriously, I think you nailed it there. You said uh, very clearly that, you know, those those companies and those people that are succeeding are those that are driven by a mission or purpose. You know, when I worked in corporations, it was so cliched, all this mission, vision, mission, vision, values and corporate social responsibility. We'd sit around and listen to talks about values, values, values. And I'd be so sick and tired of it that I'd take the big book that or training manual, or whatever. And I, as soon as I got home, I'd just toss it in the garbage. And um, because it was lip service, but here I am, you know, with 40,000, you know, fellow American citizens, I'm an American citizen as well as an Irish citizen in jail for cannabis law violations. And half of them are black and none of them are violent. Like, you know, um, and it's just absurd. And meanwhile, outside of those jails, there's people making millions in intergenerational wealth. They're making so much money now in cannabis that they'll be able to send their great grandchildren to university. No problem. But, you know, that that just I don't know what it is. It just so my, I, I never really paid much attention to my values, but they are the values of my Irish American community to say that I'm passionate about it is an understatement. There seems to be a much stronger Irish connection with cannabis and like corporate cannabis in general. There seems to be a lot of like Irish people kind of getting involved in this kind of thing. And you've actually engaged with a few of them yourself. How broad is this connection? Like, is this like a historical connection that we're bubbling back up again? And, or is it just like the values that we have and, or is it an entrepreneurial spirit coming from Ireland? I think fundamentally it's it's Irish people's Irishness. We never had colonies. We never, you know, invaded anybody. I think we invaded Iceland about 800 years ago. But aside from that, we really didn't, you know, cause any problems. In fact, we had the British invading our asses for fucking 800 years. So the problem I see now is that, um, you know, as society gets more focused on social media, they're not very sociable. So the Irish are quite sociable. They're very open-minded and they're very, also very well accepted everywhere. And I think, you know, from the time of the wild geese, uh, you know, the Irish spreading around the world in the 17th century to up till now, we've, you know, we have our embassies are the pubs, the Irish pubs in every city. So we're already perceived to be within the recreational world. And as you know, cannabis is both medical and recreational, which means adult use and people could go and have fun and get high. So so it sort of fits to the Irish uh, um, personality. It fits to the Irish global perspectives because this is a global business. And also, you know, the first Irishman who was uh, uh, involved in this was an amazing guy from Limerick in the 19th century named William O'Shaughnessy, who was a talented scientist from Limerick and a doctor. And he was sent off to what at the time was the British Empire's Far East, India. And he discovered cannabis. And he was so transformed by the discovery that he was he just, it became, he became obsessed with it, it became his life's work. He brought it back to Victorian England. And even it was, he was celebrated in the court of Queen Victoria. Her personal physician 
celebrated William O'Shaughnessy and made him a, a, a he gave, gave him a knighthood, not only for 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 cannabis for for a variety of things, but that just goes to show that the, he brought it to Britain and then from Britain it came to America, and it was only because of the opium wars where cannabis was conflated with opium that it was banned uh, at an international level. Again, thanks to Harry Anslinger. Mark, I want to go back to something that you mentioned because I'm fascinated by William O'Shaughnessy. I, I did not know that myself uh, about William O'Shaughnessy and the historical Irish connection to cannabis. One thing that I've noticed, and even just speaking to you, it seems that there's still a connection to cannabis and Irish people in general. There seems to be a lot of Irish people involved in corporate cannabis right now. Yes, that's right. You know, naturally, uh, there are many Irish people and Irish Americans and indeed Canadian uh, Americans. And it's only natural that they would find their way into what's probably the fastest emerging new industry in North America. And I think a lot of the people that I've met who are Irish too, you know, we've never had any colonies really. So Irish people are also perceived to be, you know, easy to work with and positive and sociable people. So I wouldn't say that we're popular as people, but we have a certain set of values that are attractive to a lot of industries, including cannabis and stretching all the way up to tech. But in cannabis, I've met, you know, um, Australian gentleman named Peter Comerford. He's the CEO of a very large up and coming Australian uh, company. Um, I, I, I'm a follower of uh, an Irish uh, born Canadian named Matthew O'Brien, who has the most popular um, uh, sort of newsletter called 4pm in cannabis in Canada. And Matthew is a editor of that, of his own uh, newsletter. And he becomes um you know, uh, uh, when it comes in, people are very excited to read it. They share it a lot. He's 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 quite a guy, uh, just a young man. And then you also have a Canadian Irish like Rob McPherson, who used to work for Bacardi, and now he brings all his skills from working in all these big companies into cannabis in Canada. And he advises a lot of those kind of companies. And he's very proud of his Irish background. He's constantly referencing it. Because I think a lot of people too, as well as Irish born people in the industry, they're very proud of Ireland. Oh, 100%. I work in tech myself. So, you know, you often hear it as well, where uh, Irish Americans, Irish Canadians, like when you're working with them, they, uh, one of the first things that they'll say to you is like, oh, yes, I'm from, uh, from like Kerry originally myself, and I'm from like uh, Castlebar, uh, wherever it may be. So um, I think that's, that's definitely universal. Um, But, you know, I, I kind of like a bit of an odd segue because, as I mentioned, like the tech industry, it also, uh, I mean, what what we've kind of seen was uh, with corporate cannabis in general, and I think like you've also done this as well, is that there's an aspect of bringing in the kind of... Uh, the the tech side of things into corporate cannabis and having similar mentalities of innovation um, that you hear in the tech industry and applying that to corporate cannabis. Like I'd love to kind of understand more like where you think that comes from and like where, where do you see that same kind of overlap as well? Yeah, I think what's interesting, David, is from the perspective of the limiting federal legislation 
a lot of the big players, like, you know, whether it's Nielsen who studied market share of companies around the world or, you know, technology platforms like POS systems or CRM systems. The exciting thing in cannabis, at least in California originally, was that none of these industries were allowed into the cannabis industry or some of them didn't want to be involved in it. So what it meant was here was California, the fifth largest economy in the world, if it was its own country, and certainly the, you know, the center of technology. Of course, there was cross fertilization between the cannabis industry in Silicon Valley and the technology people in Silicon Valley. And it's a wonderful relationship because both are, you know, free thinkers or open-minded. Both groups are, you know, uh, uh, of California and deeply understand the social dynamics of, of cannabis and the social justice nature of cannabis. But it's also the profitability of cannabis is off the charts. Because as I said, there's no technology companies in cannabis five years ago, and now there are. So one group from uh, various Silicon Valley companies, including uh, your own TikTok, uh, formed uh, Dutchie, which was a um, a platform that enabled you to scan certain items in a dispensary, which is where they sell cannabis, rather like you would in a supermarket. And I know that sounds like something that is pretty obvious that every store should have, but we didn't have them in cannabis. And recently, Dutchie raised $200 million uh, for their technology platform. And there's another one in, in Canada called Headset, which is set up by another group of young technologists, and it, uh, it tracks market share, rather like Nielsen does. And they're raising tens of millions of dollars. And all these other technology things are not only replicants or replicas of the, you know, the mass market technologies that exist for normal retail or normal business management, but these are technologies that are actually amazing. Like the one I was telling you about, PipeDrive, which is a CRM technology, that was actually developed by cannabis people who went back into tech because they had created a CRM system that was so good for cannabis that they took it to the mass market. So your point about cross-fertilization is absolutely true. But even in Ireland, you know, where you have all those um, you know, uh, uh, technology companies located. There's one group there called Arbitus, an excellent group who are developing hemp in Ireland and someday maybe cannabis. But they're headed by a wonderful Irish CEO named Leah Fletcher. And I believe she's from uh, Cork uh, area. So there's a lot happening uh, around the world, but even in Ireland too. From what you're saying there, it seems like that one, there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs to come in and kind of get in at the grand level with um, resources and technology that in other, just haven't been developed yet for this industry, but you know, maybe table of stakes for others. But it also seems that there's a potentially unique opportunity here for Ireland in particular as like a hub for this innovation. Exactly. And, you know, Ireland has an opportunity now on many different levels, as you said, the first one, because it's already globally positioned through technology, which is this, you know, where a lot of the talent or these replacing of legacy systems with new cannabis systems, uh, that has to happen in Europe too. In Europe now, there's nothing. It's like walking down O'Connell Street and there's no buildings there. You know, so it's an opportunity for Ireland to build an industry and to take the lead on building an industry that's in, in, in America, it's forecasted to be an $84 billion industry. In fact, this week, uh, cannabis overtook Chicago and Illinois, sorry, the whole state of Illinois in sales of cannabis. Sales of cannabis overtook sales of liquor in Illinois is a big deal. And that will happen 
true. Yeah. I just don't feel like that those kind of stories really get promoted that much. This is the opportunity. This is the very opportunity that you were pointing out that there's nothing existing. So, you know, if someone were to set up, um, I think we chatted about this in one conversation. If someone were to set up, uh, you know, soon you'll see Irish cannabis news. I don't know who will set it up. I have no idea. It'll happen. And it'll be as popular as the Irish Times. So there is no information. There is no information, of course, because no one's reporting on it, except there is in, in, in America. People's eyes popped out of their heads when they it was on NBC, which is a very reputable uh, one of the top five channels. Um, the people just couldn't believe it. Yes, revenues of, from uh, cannabis exceeded that of liquor not by a country mile, too, by $10 million or something like that. Obviously, you have a situation in Illinois where like legislation has opened up there. I mean, the majority of the U.S. is still behind Illinois. And you have also many countries in Europe that are still far behind. So it feels like that even when you're saying, what was it, 80, like $84 billion was like the the, the potential. Forecast. Yeah, the forecast. I mean, is that conservative? Is that a conservative forecast or? It is because there's a bifurcation in the market between medical because the plant has analgesic properties and it helps people with severe illnesses like epilepsy. But the recreational part is being driven by the fact that you have people like Diageo um, who own Guinness looking at this and going, oh, my goodness, we've never seen anything like it. Our sales are just collapsing because people are, you know, they don't want to wake up with a hangover. They, they could wake up feeling wonderful after smoking a lot of cannabis. And provided they don't mix it with tobacco like that, that you do in Ireland. But, you know, you shouldn't do that, by the way. It's terrible. It's, it causes cancer, that stuff. But, yeah, I think, you know, to your point, David, the fact that nothing exists is an opportunity for Ireland. The fact that Ireland has an infrastructure that is represented by its technology uh, uh, savviness across Europe, the fact that it has such a young uh, population that, you know, the only thing that's holding Ireland back is a lack of entrepreneurialism in the country. We simply weren't taught entrepreneurialism at school. We were taught to go and work in a bank. You know, remember that expression, you know, get up to Dublin and get a job in a bank. That, that really is a limiting self-belief that Ireland has. We have so much potential and people really like us. So we might as well just go for it. And just go into Europe, set up companies, figure out the, you know, do your research, see what opportunities are there and follow your passion. That's what I would say to Irish people. It's interesting that you say that because like, you know, I remember during the economic crisis back in 2008, I, that was around the time that I was like leaving college and like trying to find my first job. And I think it kind of forced a lot of people to look at uh, being an entrepreneur and like starting up something for themselves or going abroad and starting and like trying to almost get out of our comfort zones to, to do something. I wonder whether this moment now with the pandemic and with uh, work as we know it just flipped upside down, if this is the right opportunity then for, for people to kind of say, well, if there's any time I'm going to do it, it's going to be now. Well, I think I mentioned I, I launched a news service in cannabis 
in you know last year and it's booming now and it's essentially like i described it's a it's a uh, a simple news platform that you know anybody could create there's also opportunities to not even wait for cannabis to, to go into cbd drinks so I, I guess you know it's really up to people to during this pandemic just you know depending on what circumstances they were in there's been a lot of suffering in the pandemic of course but as you say it's an inflection point where people could say well actually i don't want to go work in a bank i want to do my own thing and i want to set something up myself and i think that they would be far happier doing something like that and doing it in cannabis which is the opportunity than continuing the way they were you know people often say i want to go back to the days before the pandemic but do we really do we really want to go back to sitting in traffic all day and you know working from home and developing a little cannabis business is, is environmentally much better than sitting in traffic all day I have a very stupid question for you as well, because when I was thinking about like Ireland as a hub, aside from like the the technological elements of things, like uh, I was kind of thinking like, is our climate also a potential like good climate to be a, to also have an impact on the agricultural side of things in regards to growing cannabis? Yes. And, you know, this group in Ireland, uh, Leah Fletcher and her company Arbitus, who she's actually married to a Canadian gentleman. And that's why she came back to Ireland. She's a real advocate for, for cannabis. But the benefits to the Irish farmer are, are huge. Um, not only from a, from a point of view that Ireland could act as a sort of R&D for farming of cannabis and understanding farming of cannabis, but also the farmers themselves in Ireland, hemp or cannabis plants help regenerate the soil. They take out four times as much carbon out of the atmosphere as a tree would. And they're tremendously good at in terms of the Irish being able to you know, cope with the with the very moderate and, and very mild, but also very wet Irish climate. And in fact, the sad thing is that for many centuries, Ireland did grow hemp, and they grew a lot of hemp for the, the for the British uh, Navy, and uh, provided a lot of which provided a lot of the ropes and the and the clothing for the sailors and so on. So it's only really recently that Ireland stopped being in hemp. And again, uh, you know, because of Ireland's um, in, in this sort of intangible connection around the world of being sociable, Ireland would be wonderfully associated with such a sociable plant as cannabis, as well as the medical background too of cannabis. So if I'm to summarize, we have an industry which is ripe for entrepreneurs to come in and uh, an industry which can have positive medical output and positive uh, environmental output as well. So, and social output. And social output. So I think like, I think I, I, this could be a dumb question again, but like, what's the downside? Is there a downside that we should be aware of? Um, that's a good question. I haven't considered it lately. Well, the downside is um, the realization that for years we've been gaslit by all of our governments that cannabis is bad for you, is gonna be, uh, you know, there's gonna be a backlash. And unfortunately, it'll ruin the credibility of a lot of the governments that have been propping up the war on drugs, including the American government. People don't really believe the American government, what it says anymore. 
because it said that cannabis was schedule one with no medical value. Yeah, so it's almost like the downside here is uh, is a potentially an erosion of trust at the top levels. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really happening here. And I think it, I don't mean to say that everything happens in America that will, ha- will happen in Europe, but the, the, the hope for Europe is that people like Gregor Zorn, who is from Slovenia, another small country that is boxing above its weight, he's uh, driving the thought leadership of cannabis in Europe as the chief scientific officer of Canaray in the UK, as the founder of the European Cannabinoid Association. He's all about the science. And again, Ireland has such amazing universities and such amazing research and development potential, such a wonderfully educated workforce. I I hope the Irish government would look into the science of cannabis and see the match. You know, the biggest uh, uh, CBD company in the world is Jazz Pharmaceuticals in Ireland. They own the patents around the delivery of CBD for epileptic seizure uh, relief and mitigation. And so Ireland has so much potential. It has so much great entrepreneurial potential. One thing that I, I, you know, I want to go back to you because obviously uh, we've been talking a lot about the opportunity and the potential, but what's next for you and like, what are you currently working on yourself? Well, uh, you know, it's it's um, all, all my my career uh, since leaving uh, University College Dublin and and going to Procter and Gamble has been opening emerging markets. So after you know, I'm I'm enjoying cannabis because it, it's in line with my values towards social justice. You know, when when you're dealing with a plant that is making people millions of dollars in intergenerational wealth while there's forty thousand people incarcerated, it, it gives you a mission. And incarcerated for non-violent cannabis law, uh, non-violent cannabis law violation, you start to think this is a, a, a purposeful place for you to be. So, I, I think I'll enjoy this for a while. To answer your question, David, and thank you for the question. But after this, I plan to go into, um, you know, lean more into psilocybin, which is the next big medical breakthrough. Recently, in London, at the University of uh, of London, they did a, a test. It's actually a, quite a small base size of about 90 people. And they discovered that, well, they weren't trying to measure it, that uh, psilocybin mushrooms perform better than the classic antidepressants at relieving depression. But more than that, they discovered that across all aspects of, of the patient's, uh, the depressed patient's life, they simply became happier. And so I'm excited at the medical breakthroughs that are coming through plant-based medicine generally, but definitely my next move is probably going to be doing a lot more in the psychedelic space. Wow. Interesting. And then like for, you know, we've got a lot of people on the call, like, you know, I'm sorry, a lot of people listening in um, who are themselves like aspiring entrepreneurs but we also have people that are uh, looking to jump into the industry. Like, do you have any asks for our community or any last piece of advice for our community? Yeah, funnily enough, it seems that the cannabis industry normally lives in conferences and goes from, you know, when you have a cannabis conference, people in the industry all congregate to it. But nowadays it's LinkedIn. So I would recommend to people to uh, Irish people to, you know, stand in their own integrity and their own values and be proud of who they are and try to think about setting up a small business, even if it's an e-commerce platform in Dublin that sells CBD drinks to Europeans, even if 
if it's a technology platform. All of those things are, are there for the taking. But LinkedIn is the place to find, you know, you'll find the cannabis people there simply by searching for them uh, or hashtag cannabis. I'm there myself. I've got 29,000 followers on LinkedIn. Follow me. I'm always uh, reposting things about jobs and how to get into the industry. That's another way. And you don't have to start your own company. Just, you know, come over here and join the, uh, join the industry. Um, find a summer internship and, uh, but really this is your Jeff Bezos driving across the country to start up Amazon. This is Steve Jobs moment where he found that if he had a, uh, his friend, um, his nerdy friend, he could create this uh, kind of computer. You know, it's, it's these moments that are happening now, which in California seem to happen every 30 years and they're happening right now. So everybody's welcome in Ireland to come and join the cannabis industry. I can't think of a better place to, to stop than there. That is such a great way to end. Uh, Mark, I can't thank you enough again for your time today and uh, for all of our uh, conversations in the lead up to this as well, because um, I've, I found this fascinating. I've learned a lot of, not just about like the the current industry but history and like implications to come so just massive thank you for your time thank you very much David. and that is it for episode three of the second season of the digital irish podcast thank you so much to mark collins for joining us and thank you to you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please share this with anybody that you think would find it interesting. We're also keen to know if this episode was interesting, particularly around corporate cannabis. We have the potential to speak to a number of different people that work in this industry. So if you found it interesting, please do email us at hello at digitalirish.com. Even if you just found it interesting generally, please email us. We're very keen to hear from you. But for now, thank you so much again for listening. We hope to catch you back here again soon.